1 John chapter number 2. For the past two weeks, we've been studying through the book of 1 John. Don't know exactly how far the Lord will allow us to take it. I would love to go all the way through the book of 1 John, but we just try to let Him lead us as we go. 1 John chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 3. And uh, we're going to read some of the verses we read last week because we didn't get as far last week as we hoped to. Uh, We believe we obeyed the mind of the Lord, but we didn't get as far as our mind was expecting to. Uh, Verse 3, the Bible says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word, which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. Now, that's as far as we got last week. Verse 9 says, He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless your word tonight that you'd illuminate it to our hearts, to our minds. Lord, that you'd apply it through the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. Father, do in us that which only you are able to do, and we'll be sure to give you the praise that's due only to your name. Uh, Lord, we thank you for each and every one that's come out tonight. Pray they'd have a special blessing in their heart and life. And Father, just that we'd all live in such a way to glorify you and to lift up the high and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been studying through the book of First John, and you know, I'm going to try not to do too much review week after week after week, or else you just never get past uh, the first couple chapters. But I want to remind you that John is writing this letter to combat uh, a form of heretical doctrine known as Docetism. Docetism was a uh, subgroup of Gnostics. Now, Gnostics in the early uh, first century and then all the way through, uh, even today, Gnosticism exists. They just don't call it that was this idea that they had an advanced revelation, something that you couldn't get from the Word of God, something that had to be gotten directly from uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me remind you that today in the charismatic movement of this world, it's not uncommon to hear a charismatic preacher uh, speak about revelation. And what they mean by that is something they're claiming to get directly from the mind of God that's not found in the Word of God. And they'll talk about God giving this to you or imparting this to you. And uh, that's kind of slick language that they use 
used today to basically speak about advanced revelation. You say, well, preacher, could that not be so? No, it could not be so because the Word of God teaches us uh, that uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's how Scripture is given. Uh, how does God inspire? Through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit speak of? He speaks of the Son. That's what we were told. He wouldn't speak of Himself. He'd speak only of the Son. Well, who is the Son? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And uh, verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Uh, Christ made the statement. He said, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his master doeth. Uh, but I have called you friends for all things that the Father hath made known unto me, have I made known unto you. And of course, the book of Revelation ends with the warning giving that nothing be added to nor taken away from the Word of God. So no, they're wrong when they say that. And uh, you say, well, preacher, what is it they're talking about? Well, I don't know what they're talking about. I, I know that Satan has always had a vested interest in adding to the Word of God and in taking away from it. Uh, I maybe would not jump so far as to say that everyone that believes they've had a special revelation uh, has gotten it from Satan. I don't know that I could say that definitively, but I know that Satan has a vested interest in it. And I know that uh, no matter where they got it from, they didn't get it from the Lord because the Lord has told us everything that we need to know and He's told it to us in this Bible that sits right in front of you. It is the inspired Word of God. So Gnostics claim that they had this advanced revelation. And Docetism, this subgroup of Gnosticism, was uh, basically a group of people that uh, believed three things. And I'll just give them to you quickly and then we'll jump in, I promise. One of them was they believed that all things that were material were intrinsically wrong and all things that were spiritual were intrinsically right. And the problem with that is that then you accept the works of Satan because he is a spiritual being as being right or righteous. Well, the Bible teaches us that uh, he's the prince of darkness. He's the God of this world, uh, that there's no light within him. And by the same token, you'd have to reject things like the creation, uh, according to Genesis chapter number 1, because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, you'd have to reject the incarnation because the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. You'd have to reject the resurrection because the Bible teaches that he was raised with a glorified body, which is spiritual, but is also tangible or physical in a sense. And so uh, this false doctrine, they believe that everything that was material was bad, everything that was spiritual was good, was one of the things they believed. Another belief that they had uh, was that they were morally superior to everyone else. Now, they wouldn't have said that they didn't sin. They would have said that to them it wasn't sin. Boy, that don't, don't that sound like the world we live in today may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. And I, I hate to tell you this, but uh, God is no respecter of persons. If it's wrong for me, it's wrong for you. If it's wrong for you, it's wrong for me. And they would claim that they were uh, superior to such uh, petty and childish titles as sin or iniquity. And you can see, as John writes this letter, uh, how he's addressing these things. Uh, when he says, if any man say he hath not sinned, he's, uh, he lies and does not the truth. He's deceived himself. And then, of course, they also believed that because they believed everything material was wrong and everything spiritual was right, they had a real problem with the Incarnation. Because here is the Son of God, but He's also the Son of Man. He's 100% God, but He's 100% man as well. So how do they deal with that? Well, they dealt with it by claiming that Jesus was a human being, but that Christ was the name of a spirit that descended upon Him at His baptism in the likeness of a dove and departed from Him before He was crucified. And that's why uh, John is very clear to say that if anyone says that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, uh, he's, he's not of God. He doesn't know God. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ was 100% God, but I believe He was 100% man too. I don't believe He had a sin nature. 
But I believe he was 100% man. I believe when he walked this earth, you could do just as many people had done. John had laid his head upon the uh, chest of the Savior. That's why John says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which our hands have handled. He's saying, oh no, he wasn't just a human with a touch of God. Uh, He was 100% human, but he was 100% God as well. So John is addressing these doctrinal problems in this letter. And, you know, we all love this, uh, the book of 1 John because it's so sweet and it's so endearing. Uh, who would have ever thought he was dealing with bad doctrine? But, you know, that goes to the same old stereotype that we all have, which is this, that if we expose and if we reject and if we, uh, if we condemn bad doctrine, we're doing it out of hate. That mentality has come from the world. That's not a biblical mentality. There's no greater expression of love than that of warning someone of a danger that's in front of them. I mean, if, uh, if I was to see you walking uh, down a railroad track and there was a train coming, I mean, I could, I could interrupt your nice leisurely walk uh, and be a mean person by warning you that a train is coming. You might turn around and say, hey, why'd you interrupt me? I was having a good stroll. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that it was still love for me to warn you rather than letting you go about walking leisurely in the midst of danger. And so there's nothing wrong with exposing heretical doctrine. In fact, it's biblically mandated that we do expose heretical doctrine. So this is what John is dealing with. And uh, this uh, group of uh, docetism, I I, I don't know whether to call them docetists or docetics. I don't know, so I just call it docetism, amen? But they, uh, they were a group of people that had broke away from this congregation that John is writing to. And they were uh, afflicting and persecuting this congregation by essentially telling them, you don't know all the truth, we know all the truth. You're just not enlightened. That's why you're so narrow-minded about this Jesus Christ fellow, is because you're not enlightened. Boy, doesn't that sound like the world today? Uh, This idea, well, you're just a Christian, you're just narrow-minded because you're not enlightened. And uh, sad to say, a lot of our young people go away to uh, places of uh, uh, higher learning on a lower level and get enlightened, and they come back rejecting the Word of God. Uh, and it's because they've been told that they just needed to be enlightened. Now, I'm not against bettering yourself or getting educated, uh, but let me say this. There is a certain level of stupidity that you have to go to school to achieve, amen? And we need to be careful that we don't get to that place. Uh, but uh, these uh, docetics were persecuting this group of believers. Well, who were they going to write to? Who were they going to ask about it? Who could they write to? Who could they ask? Well, everyone was dead, everyone except John. So John was a voice of authority. Now, I'm not saying that everything that John spoke in his daily walk was inspired. I'm not implying that. I'm not implying that John was anything more than just a sinner saved by grace. That's all he was. And that's all John would have said he was, by the way. But he did have apostolic authority. Now, you say, well, what does that mean, preacher? It means that he was one that had walked with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. He had seen him crucified. He could bear testimony that he had been raised from the dead by the power of God. And he knew what he was talking about. And he was one of the men that God used to write Scripture. And he did so. We have it there before us. But uh, as John was writing to these people, one of the things that concerned them was this. How can we know? How can we know that we're right and they're wrong? How can we know that we have the truth? How can we know? That's one of the blessed things about the book of 1 John. Is uh, Down in chapter number 5, John said, These things have I written that you may know. And can I say that in a world of uh, relativity, if we could use that terminology without doing damage to it, uh, in a world that tells you you can't know, the Bible tells us we can know. And there's a lot of people that like to believe we can't know, and I think they like to believe we can't know because they don't know. But just because they don't know doesn't mean I don't know. 
I know because of the Word of God. Not because I'm any brighter or smarter or better looking. I mean, I'm all those things, but that's not the reason, amen? Uh, You know, uh, but because God reveals to us that there's some things that we can know. And uh, the Gospel of John was written that uh, we may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's what we're told uh, at the end of the Gospel of John. But 1 John was written that we may know uh, for those that have believed on the name of the Son of God, that they may know that they have eternal life. So this is a book of knowledge. This is a book that gives us some concrete truths. We talked about last week uh, the tests, and if you've got a Schofield Bible, and I, I'm not married to a Schofield Bible, but I do believe he uh, uh, divides this in a good way that will help you. Uh, he has a little header here that says the tests of fellowship. And what I think he means by this, and what I know the Word of God means by giving us this, uh, is what's said in verse number 3, and hereby we do know that we know him. Now, why is John writing this? John's writing this so that they can know that they know him and so that they can know about this other group of people whether they know him or not. Now, this is an important thing we need to have today. We need to know this. Now, I said last week, and I'll say it again, that, you know, I mean, we're not the profession police. And it's not necessarily our job to go around to everybody and, and check if they measure up to our expectations. But we do have a responsibility to be vigilant. We do have a responsibility to guard uh, our hearts against what other false teachers would have us to believe. How do we know who's real and who's not? How do we know who's legit and who's not? Well, there's two things that are given to us. And we talked about the first one last week. Uh, and it's encompassed in uh, what we see in verse number 3. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And the first is obedience. I can tell you right now that people, everybody talks about Jesus today. I mean, isn't that true? Everybody, we haven't had a president. I mean, listen, the the one we've got now is the most anti-God president that we've ever had. But even he will tell you that he has faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, they'll all tell you that. We've never had a president that didn't say that they had some degree of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you can see where our country's at today, and you can see the policies that have led us here. And, uh, and I don't mean to all put it upon just the president, but we could go and look at congressmen, senators, and on, so on and so forth. We'd go outside the realm of politics, and we could look at quote-unquote religious leaders. We could look at academic leaders, scientific leaders. Everybody seems to be talking about this Jesus Christ fellow. But it's one thing to talk about him. It's another thing to know him. And they can talk about Him all they wish. And they can say that they believe in Him all that they want. But here's the acid test. Do they keep His commandments? Not what their lips say. What does their life say? And John's very explicit. In fact, he goes so far in verse number 4 as to say, He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Boy, that's strong language right there that John uses says that if somebody comes to you and says, I know God, but then they don't keep His commandments, that person's a liar. Now, that's not to say we're going to live in sinless perfection. That's not to say that we're never going to do anything wrong. And John even makes that clear because he says in uh, verse number 1 of this chapter, he says, uh, My children, these things, little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John's not saying you're never going to sin. But he, there, listen, there's a difference between a slip-up and a lifestyle. There's a difference between making a mistake, we all make mistakes, we all do wrong, and living absolutely contrary to the Word of God in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And that's what we're seeing much of today. But then we come to the second test, and this is where I want us to look at some new things. Look at verse 9. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. 
Now, John has just got through saying in verses 7 and 8, he says, I I write no new commandment unto you. Well, why did he write that? He wrote that because there's a group of people saying they had a new commandment. John's saying, no, I'm not writing a new commandment unto you, but that which you've had from the beginning. And when he speaks of the beginning here, he's speaking of the gospel. And he's saying the same truth that you started out with, just like Paul said in the book of Galatians, you've begun in the Spirit, are you now going to finish according to the works of the law and through legalism and through the works of the flesh? Say, no, what you began with, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, incarnate in this world, dying for your sins, uh, John's saying that's still right. That commandment is nothing new. Then he says, a new commandment I write unto you. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, wait a minute. I thought he just said he wasn't going to write a new commandment. No, what he's saying is this. The truth that we base our life off of is the same commandment that it's always been. But he's saying something has changed. He says that the darkness is past and the true light now shineth, which is true in him and in you. Now, what's he saying by saying that? And and again, I'm going to try not to just over-review myself tonight. But he's saying that the dispensation of the types and shadows of the Old Testament law is past. The true light has entered the world. Christ has been manifest to us. We no longer just have to uh, look at these Old Testament types and shadows, as the book of Hebrews calls them, and uh, try to learn something about who the Messiah is and who God is. We've seen Him who is the express image of His glory and in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. We are now in an age of grace and we have the Word of God and the true light now shineth. That's the day that we live in. But now He switches the language. He doesn't say He that saith He knoweth Him, but He says He that saith He is in the light. So now we're talking not just about people that have a general acknowledgement of God or of Jesus, but people that claim to have been saved. And he says, you can say that you've been saved, but if you hate your brother, you're in darkness even until now. I think it's important that we understand what biblical love is. Because I think we live in a day where love has been warped and twisted and made something that the Bible never defines it to be. Love is not something, and, and, I, and I hope I say this right, you're going to have to give me a grain of salt, maybe a whole salt shaker as I describe this, because I'm sure I'll missay it a hundred times. But uh, love, doesn't never, love doesn't lack passion. Does that make sense? Uh, love is not always something that is uh, appealing on the surface. Love is not always something we understand. Love, listen carefully, love is, is what's always right for us in God's eyes. Does that make sense? Love is doing the thing which is right in God's eyes. We live in a day where I think that the greatest disadvantage our children are growing up in is they're growing up in a home without biblical love. They have compromise, they have apathy, they have friendship, but they're growing up in a home that lacks biblical love. Biblical love has the capacity to be tender and to be compassionate but also has the capacity to do the hard job, to discipline. Uh, it, it has a reality to it that is tempered in grace. And I think today we live in a, in a day where we have changed young people's definition and, and comprehension of what love is because we've made them believe that love is giving someone everything that they want. And that's not necessarily what love is. Love is not always palatable in an experiential sense. But love is always doing what's right in the eyes of God towards another person. Uh, God defines love as Himself, as part of His essence. And we could talk about the essence and attributes of God. Those are two different things. The attributes are what God does, but the essence is what God is. Holiness is an essence of God. God is holy. 
God is love. The book of 1 John tells us that. God is light. These things are His essence. They are what makes Him who He is. And love is so vital that it's described to us as part of God's essence. And let me say as believers that we ought to have an inborn love by the Spirit of God towards one another. I think that uh, one of the greatest plagues on the New Testament church today is that of hatefulness, cruelty, and selfishness. It's funny that we would gather in a place and all talk about a man that expressed God's love toward us and yet treat each other with such malice and contempt so oftentimes. It's funny. It's funny that the list of our sins is so long, but the fuse on our personality is so short. I feel like part of the reason we have trouble dealing with one another in love is because there's so many of us. And I, and I don't necessarily mean this about this group of people. I hope that everybody in here knows Jesus Christ. And I, like I said, I'm not the profession police. But I think part of the reason that a lot of our churches lack love is because a lot of our churches are lacking in the number of saved people in them. The book of First John says, look, you can say that you're saved, but if you don't love other saved folk, you're not saved. Now, some of you are saying, who are you to say? Well, I'm nobody to say. That's what the Bible says. If you hate your brother, he that hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Now, some would say, well, uh, you know, that could be saying that they've fallen from grace. No, John's very clear in what he says here. Darkness even until now. Not saying they were saved and lost their salvation. We know that's not possible. But, but he's not saying that they were saved and they fell into darkness. He's saying they've never been out of darkness. They're in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. So obedience and love are going to go hand in hand one of another. And there's none occasion of stumbling in him. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, preacher. Is that saying that we're going to live perfectly? Uh, well, yes and no. And let me explain it this way. If we abide in love and we abide in light, there'll be none occasion of stumbling in him. But I don't know a single person that can perfectly and completely abide in love and light other than the Immaculate Son of God. You see, the truth of the matter is, if we could do that 24-7, if we could live in that way all the time, uh, then I I suppose in a theoretical sense we could not commit sin, but none of us can do that because we're all human, we're all flesh, we're all sin-fallen creatures that have been redeemed by the grace of God. And on this side of heaven, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be sinless. But what it's saying is this. Uh, stumbling and obedience and love, all of these things are correlated one to another. I think that a lot of, the, uh, a lot of people fall out of church because either a lack of love that they showed towards God's people or a lack of love that God's people showed towards them. Don't you think so? Haven't you met people that have fallen out of church for that reason? And it's funny how it is, and I know I'm not saying this all exactly how I'd love to be saying it, but, but it's funny that we could treat each other so cruelly and claim to be the children of God. It's funny that we could have such short fuses that we should, could be so self-centered and selfish and claim to be the disciple of one that was completely selfless. It's funny that we could make it all about us when we claim to be the disciple of one that didn't make it all about him. You see, the truth of the matter is, John is giving us some very practical truths here. And he's saying that if we allow hate in our hearts, uh, number one, if we live a lifestyle of hate, it's evidence that we've never been saved. But even as believers, when we allow hate in our hearts and in our lives, it's going to affect our relationship with God. There will be occasions of stumbling in our lives. 
So he goes on a little further. I know I didn't say it exactly like I wanted to, but I, that's how I said it either way. Verse number 11 says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. You see, the lost person doesn't understand that the way he's living is hate. We were talking before church, me and Miss Linda were, about a, a guy that I know, and uh, I, he, he had made some comments I, I had put on. You know how Facebook, everything's got to do with Facebook anymore. Isn't that how it is? But I had put a thing on Facebook about uh, somebody getting saved, and he had gone on there and started uh, talking about how he hated to see people that were uh, falling to such delusion and ignorance and so on and so forth. You say, Preacher, what would you do? I deleted his comment because that's how Facebook works, amen? Uh, that's what I did. But uh, either way... Uh, he, he did this, and we were talking about, you know, how could someone be that way? Well, he's in darkness, Miss Linda. He's blinded. He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. His, his eyes have been blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, but they've also been blinded from the truth of the Word of God. He thinks what he's doing is compassion because he's growing up in this uh, environment of love that the world has defined. No, you really live in love. It's going to cause you to warn people of a soon-coming hell. Uh, it's going to cause you to treat people right when they've treated you wrong. It's going to cause you to live like Jesus Christ lived. He goes a little further, verse number 12. We enter a different phase here. And I know I didn't say much about the light and the darkness there, but I, I want to get into this. He begins to talk to three classifications of believers. And he begins by using the terminology. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, if you just look at that word, little children, it's a different word than what's used down a little bit later in the text. And you say, well, why does that matter, preacher? Because what he's saying here when he speaks of little children, the first times he's speaking of all those that have been saved, those that are the children of God. And he's going to begin to speak something to each of them that defines them, but also something that warns them about a problem that they're going to encounter. So he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Let me pause there and say that's an important statement that John gives. It's important not only in the broad theological spectrum. It's not just important because it's important, but I mean to these believers that's important. Because they're wondering whether they really know God or not. And John's saying, listen, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. The problem, your sin problem, has been dealt with on Calvary, and that need not trip you up any longer. You need not live in guilt of that sin problem, because Christ has paid for it upon Calvary. And then he begins by speaking of fathers. He says, I write unto you fathers, because you have known Him that is from the beginning. Now, when John is saying fathers here, he's not speaking necessarily of just men and not women. He's not necessarily speaking of just those uh, that chronologically have walked this earth longer than others. But he's spiritually speaking of fathers, those that have walked with God for many, many years. Now, in this context, when he says, have known him that is from the beginning, I think he is speaking of those that for many years, some of them maybe even reaching back to a time when it wasn't many years after Christ had been crucified. They had walked with God. Can I say that there's a lot of people, and I don't know anybody's spiritual condition in this place other than my own, and i found that my heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and who can know it? So I have to go to God to figure out how I'm doing anyway. But can I say that just because you've been saved for a lot of years, that doesn't mean you've been walking with God for a lot of years. There's lots of folks that got saved at a young age, but they've not really grown. They've not walked with God, and they're just as spiritually immature today as they were the day they got up from the altar. 
and they've not advanced any in their spiritual walk. That's not who John's talking to. John is talking to those that have spent many, many years walking in fellowship with God the Father. And it's a blessed truth that we can walk with Him day in and day out. He says this next, I write unto you young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because ye have known the Father. Now he speaks next to young men. Well, who are young men? Those that have walked with God for a short amount of time. They're not babes in Christ. They're growing. They're strong in the Word of God. And they're not nearing the end of their spiritual journey, which implies that they're not nearing the end of their physical journey either. But those that have gotten to know God to some degree. And he speaks of them and he points this out to them. Notice this. You have overcome the wicked one. These are believers that have learned to fight the spiritual fight. And if you're ever going to grow in your relationship with God, you're going to have to learn to be sober and to be vigilant. Uh, One of the greatest plagues, I think, upon the New Testament church is that the church is so blind to the spiritual warfare that's taking place around them. Nothing happens on accident, friend. God has a will for your life, but the devil has a will for your life, too. We're getting ready to go up to camp next week, and and I, I want to exhort our camp workers to do this. Next week, while we're at camp, be sober and vigilant. As problems arise... Don't immediately see that person that seems to have caused it. Look past them and ask yourself, is the devil trying to get an advantage this week over us? It never ceases to amaze me year after year uh, in camp. And I probably have a little bit more opportunity. Heretofore, I've not had to keep a cabin of kids. And I think, you know, when you've got a cabin of kids, you're just trying to keep them from setting each other's hair on fire. And it's easy to get very, very... It's all a blur. You know, I'm aware of that. And, and uh, not, not having kids while I'm up there, I'm able maybe to step back and be a little bit more contemplative about what's taking place. But it's almost like you can see it. In the morale and disposition of the workers year after year, you can tell when Satan's trying to get to them. And you can tell when they're letting him too. And it never, never fails, friend. I promise you, we're getting ready to go up there here in, what, like six days, five days, something like that. I promise you, as soon as we get up there, the second you get there, there'll be somebody that'll find your last nerve and climb all over it and use it as a trampoline. Always is. How are you going to respond to it? Well, a spiritually mature Christian understands that it's not that person that is their enemy. It's not, listen, you get in a feud and a fuss and a fight with somebody around you, one of your church friends, they're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. The devil's your enemy. They're the ones that are trying to disrupt things. They're the ones that are trying... He's the one that's trying to get you out of church. He's the one that's trying to discourage you. He's the one that's trying to sow discord. And we do nothing but allow him to play us for fools when we take that out on our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to learn to see this thing as a spiritual battle. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me that uh, you can be wide awake all day, but it comes time to pray and you'll get sleepy. Uh, you can be bored to death and you can open up your Bible and go to read it and distractions will start popping up. This is a spiritual battle we're in. And we need to understand this if we're ever going to overcome the wicked one. Then he writes to a third classification of people. He says, I write unto you little children because ye have known the Father. Can I say that is a blessed, blessed truth that we can know God the Father. That's the starting point. 
He's speaking of those that are spiritually immature, whether because they've just gotten saved or because they've neglected their walk with Christ, but for whatever reason, uh, they're not at an advanced stage in their spiritual walk. And that's the beginning point. He says, you know God the Father, so you've got a place to start from. You know God, that's where it begins, by knowing God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is your beginning point. Those are the definitive things that he says about him. Verse 14, he begins to talk about the uh, warning that he gives him. He says, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Now, wait a minute. Some of you are saying deja vu. Didn't we just read that? And we did. Verse 13 says, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Verse 14 says, I have, write, I have written unto you, fathers, uh, because you have known him that is from the beginning. You say, what is God teaching us? God's teaching us that there's nothing that can be added to that testimony. They've walked with God. They've walked with God for many, many years. There's nothing more that can be said about it. There's nothing greater or better that could be added to that. Can I say the most fulfilling thing that you'll ever do in your life is to walk with God. To walk with God, to have a relationship with Him. It's good to have a big old house. I wish everybody had a big house. I wish I had a big house, you had a big house. I wish everybody did, but that's not going to fulfill you. I, I wish we all had tons of money. I mean, listen, I, I wish my bank account had so many zeros they had to buy extra calculators just to figure it up. That'd be great, and I wish yours was the same way, but that's not what fulfills you. I'm not against having wealth. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. People that say that money is the root of all evil don't know their Bibles. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with having money. I wish we all had more of it. Nothing wrong with having a, uh, a nice home or a nice car or uh, anything like that. But that's not what's going to fulfill you. And whatever the challenge is that you're facing right now, and I promise you, if we ran around the room, and if we could just open up people's hearts' doors and see their greatest hurt right now, we'd see things that would blow our minds. But let me tell you something, that biggest challenge that you're facing right now, if you overcome that, that's not what's going to fulfill you. That relationship you're trying to mend, that debt you're trying to pay, whatever it is, that's not what's going to fulfill you. The thing that will fulfill you is for you to learn what God's will is, and to do it and to walk with Him day in and day out. If you don't do that, you'll never be satisfied. You'll always be miserable. You'll always be looking for something else to fix things. If you don't learn how to walk with God, you're never going to be happy in this life. A saved person cannot be happy unless they're walking with God. You say, preacher, I'm miserable. You know where I'd start? I'd find out if I've been walking with God. That's the first thing he says. He does add something to the young men. Because he says, I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So he echoes that same sentiment. He says, yes, you've overcome the wicked one, but how have you done that? Through strength and through the Scripture. In other words, through your daily walk with God, because that's where strength comes from. What, what was it that uh, the Lord told Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the way that we grow in our Christian walk is in our relationship with God. How do we have a relationship with God? We do that through prayer. We do it through submission uh, to the Holy Spirit and through obedience. But primarily, we do it through the Word of God. If you're not in your Bible, you're not going to be a strong Christian. You say, preacher, what is this all about that we're getting together and we're uh, you know, going to spend 12 weeks and studying through the book of Galatians? What's this all about? I want you to be strong in the Word of God. I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Uh, when people say, why do you believe that? I don't want you to say, because my preacher believes that. I want you to be able to take them to chapter and verse, to have a working knowledge of the Word of God. That's how you grow in the Word of God. And then he gives this warning to them 
And I, I, we'll probably have to revisit it next week. I'm just not going to have time to say everything. But it says in verse 15, this is the warning that's given. He gives no warning to the fathers, but he does uh, to the young men. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's strong language. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, we need to understand that loving the world and loving God are mutually exclusive one of the other. These are things that cannot abide each other. To love the world is to show your disdain for God and the things of God. And to love God is to show your disdain for the things of God. Of the world. James said it when he said that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now I know this is not popular. I know that, you know, the TV preachers probably never going to talk about this. I know that the health and wealth preachers are not going to talk about this, but it's still in the Bible that if we are going to express our love towards God, one of the ways that we do that is through separation from the world. Separation is still a Bible doctrine. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate. How do we do that? We don't act like the world. We don't look like the world. We don't talk like the world. We don't do the things that the world does. You say, preacher, I've been doing those things. Well, if you've been doing those things, then that's an expression that you don't love God enough. You say, that's judgmental. Well, the spiritual man judgeth all things, the Bible says. And you're not going to answer to me, and I'm not beating you over the head. I'm just telling you the truth. By the same token, if you were to say, Preacher, I've been getting some things out of my life that shouldn't have been there. You know why that is? It's because you're growing in your love for God. There's not enough room in your heart to love the world and to love God. One of them's going to have to go. So he says, Whosoever therefore is the friend of the world is the enemy of God, James says. And he says here that friendship, or that if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he describes what's in the world, verse 16, for all that is in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is an unholy trinity of temptation that we find in Scripture. You'll find it time and time and time again, this threefold temptation all through Scripture. It was there the first time that man ever sinned. Do you remember what Eve said? Eve there in the garden, uh, the, the Bible says about her that she saw the fruit. That was the lust of the eyes. That it was good to be eaten, lust of the flesh. And that it would make one wise. That's the pride of life. Do you remember in Luke chapter number 4 when Satan uh, came to tempt our Lord and Savior? And he came to him with three temptations. He knew he had been in the wilderness for 40 days uh, fasting. And he said that if you're the Son of God, command these stones that they be turned into bread. That's the lust of the flesh right there. He said uh, he took him up to a high uh, mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Right before his eyes, that's the lust of the eyes. And then he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And there upon the pinnacle, he said, Cast yourself down, for it is written that the angels shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now you say, well, preacher, why? What is, how's that the pride of life? This is how. Uh, in the book of Psalms, that's a messianic prophecy. Do you believe that the Word of God is true? Do you believe that? Do you believe that all of the Word of God is, is about you? Do you believe that? You're wrong if you believe that, because it's not all about you. Some of it is about Jesus Christ. Amen? Not every promise in the Word of God is for us. And that's a promise that's not for us. I could climb up to the steeple of this church, and I could jump off of it, and I could quote that Scripture, and I could be wearing my best suit. I could have, if I had hair, it'd be combed. I could smile like uh, some kind of televangelist, and I'd hit the ground and go whoop like that. Because that verse is not talking about me. Uh, I could jump off the pinnacle of the temple and I go... <laughs> it's not talking about me. 
You say, why did he tempt him with that? Because that was a messianic prophecy. You see, Calvary was the appointment that God the Father had made with God the Son to meet him there to deal with man's sins. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Uh, Calvary was not an accident. It was not a tragic mishap. Uh, It was the predeterminate will and foreknowledge and counsel of God that he go to Calvary. And uh, the Bible teaches that angels, if he had fallen off of a, a high cliff, angels would have bore him up. Why? Because he had to go to Calvary. And so what is it? And I'll close with this. What is it that Satan was trying to get him to do? Satan was trying to get him to reveal his deity before the proper time and in the improper way. What Satan was saying was this. You say you're the Son of God, but nobody believes you. Why don't you prove it? Why don't you prove it? That's the pride of life. The world has always tempted us with these three elements. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. By the way, do you know that this also gives us a chronology as to the temptations that we're all most susceptible to? You know that whenever you're a young person, the lust of the flesh is the thing that, that you long for. That Hey, what does the world say? If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, just do what feels right. And then you get to be a middle-aged person. And you've got a job, you've got a house, you're working. And uh, everywhere you move, the Joneses always move next door, and you've got to keep up with them. That's the lust of the eyes. You've got to look good, you've got to appear good, you've got to keep up a reputation. You've got to do the things that are seemly in the world's eyes. Then you get to be an older person. I'm getting, I, y'all are going to run me out of here on a pole, but I'm going to speak truth to you now. You know what stunts most older people's growth? They get too prideful to take exhortation from the Word of God. They say, I know it all. I know it all. Nobody's going to tell me. I know we all get on to uh, teenagers for that attitude. And you know what? Teenagers are that way. They get to be 16 years old, and all of a sudden they know everything. I don't know where they learned it, but they know everything. But do you know it's even a temptation as we get older in life to feel as though we've got everything figured out? And you know how people express it? Listen, people say, I'm too old to change. Too old to change. Let me tell you something. If you're contrary to the Word of God, you ought never be too old to change. If there's something in your life that doesn't line up with what God says you ought to be, you ought never be too old to change. But we get to a place where the pride of life. And you know, you've met some of them. You've met older people in your life sometimes that they're so prideful that everybody on the block knew that they was a fool except them. Haven't you ever known somebody like that? I mean, what happens? People get to a certain age, and all of a sudden they start dressing like teenagers, and they, uh, you know, run out, and they, they start, they, they, uh, they're like 105 years old, and they're sprayed up with spray tan, and they're, you know, orange like an Oompa Loompa, and they're trying to be something that they're not. That's pride that's driving them to do that. I'm not trying to be ugly, but I'm just being honest that pride, as we get older, becomes the thing we contend with. It's not the lust of the flesh anymore because they tell me you get to a certain age where food don't even taste good anymore. It just all tastes the same. And it's not the lust of the eyes because you get to a place where you're just too old to try to keep up with what everybody thinks you ought to be. But you get to a place where your pride gets you entrenched and you refuse to listen to the admonition of the Word of God. John says these are the things that trip us up. These are the things we contend with. I'll just read verse 17. What does it say about the world? And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever.